Hello. Oh, good morning, sir. How are you? Hi, Dan. How are you this morning? Welcome back. Welcome back. Thanks, man. How are you? I'm doing very well. Yeah? You, my God, <laughs> I feel like we have to talk about last week. We probably, we probably should. Oh, my goodness. That went, went on for a little while, that, mm. that particular show. Last week. <laughs> Thanks for bro- brokering that deal. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm, I'm always happy to put great minds together. Yeah. Last week, uh, I wasn't able to do the show, <laughs> and you had John Roderick on. He was a fill-in. They would call mm. that in the business, a fill-in. Oh, man, he filled in a lot. <laughs> it's, you know, as a listener of the other, the other program, a recent, recent uh, joinee, uh, you know, I, now I understand more why the show kind of ends in the way that it does, because you've got you've to cut the man off. <laughs> you've got to give him parameters. Yeah, John, John claims it's your fault for not having a bell. Or not using it. I, yeah, I didn't use it. And well, what, happened, the- what happened was, so John Roderick, <laughs> who I do uh, Roderick on the line with, and right. who is a writer and bon vivant and uh, singer, primary guy of the long winners, was on. And I, I want to get the numbers right. The actual episode was about two hours. Mm-hmm. And then the after dark was, I believe, an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> yes. And you didn't pee the entire time. No, no, no. I'm a professional. Like a, Man, like you're, a football player. We don't, you're don't a cyborg to... or something. I don't, I don't know how you do that. Well, this was actually, to be, to be fair, this was his second time on Back to Work, I think. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He yeah, filled when you in were... back when I had a, a child or something. You had a child thing going on, and uh, John was on, and uh, I love that episode. Um, it's kind of come to, in my mind, come to be known as sort of the pilot episode for Roderick on the Line in right. some ways. But no, it was... It was, um, it was uh, epic well he's i mean he's the he's the kind of person you know there's that green day video where they sort of uh they're in the mental hospital and they they um they wheel the 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 guys up in the wheelchair and they sort of hand them instruments and they just sort of they stand up and they start playing and they play this amazing like concert in in right there and then when it's done they sort of sit back down and they're wheeled wheeled away again i feel like it's that if you put a microphone in front of him he just does does this amazing thing for as long as he's in front of the microphone <laughs> and, and you have to you have to take him away from it to make yeah. the the genius stop but it was so much fun doing it and um uh, I, 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 he it was, was great. It was, He's great. People loved it. It turned out great. <laughs> He's awesome. I, I feel like I've learned a little bit from John. It's like, first of all, I mean, the whole reason I wanted to do it is I really like John, and I think he's a very interesting, thoughtful, and at times very unconventional guy, which I, I think that makes, you know, for interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, he's a thinker. I mean, he, I, I, my, my sense is that that conversation is still going on in his head yeah. on some level. It's just, that's where the show stopped. <laughs> right. No, not in terms of loquaciousness, but just in terms of like, he's always thinking about that stuff. And I, I could be wrong here, but one way I, I'm very sympathetic to that is this show where I really feel like I don't know precisely what it is. I think until I've said it and maybe even said it a couple times to figure out what it is I'm actually trying to say. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I do. And I, I, I think the way you put it about him, I mean, you've known him for many years and you guys have been friends for a very long time. And the, the, way, that, the way that that show, your show with him works, it's, it's interesting because I almost feel like, like it, it, in a way to me, it was almost more of an episode. I was, I was worried that it would be more of an episode of Roderick on the line with me subbing for you right. <laughs> than it would be a back to work with 
with him subbing for you. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a, but it wound up being a little, little more back to work. I think it was maybe ten percent on the back to work side. It wound up being. Yeah, I mean, for folks who enjoyed that, I would suggest going back. Uh, I need to find the episode from a couple of years ago, three years ago, probably, of when he was on Back to Work. Cause, it was episode I mean, 31. You can polish ACDC all day long in the show notes. Because uh, it's, uh, I think it's very interesting to hear him talk about, you know, how he works and the challenges of it. It's, I don't know, I, people who are good at what they do, talking about what can make it difficult or fun or rewarding or, you know, why you stick with it is always an interesting topic to me. And then I got to learn a little bit about the uh, the, the camps in uh, Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, I, I heard like a lot this of comment about it, where he's like, he's like, no, it, it wasn't cool, but, <laughs> but. <laughs> I can't, I, I can't. That would be I. I've only been to a handful of continents, and going to Africa would be a real trip for me. I, I, I kind of can't imagine what that was like. You know, it, I really can't. So foreign really to can. me. Uh huh. Yeah. But uh, was it fun to do? Oh, gosh, yeah. It was a tremendous, tremendous time. And uh, that was more time than he and I spent together when we had lunch in, in Portland a number of months back. So, but I felt, like, I felt like that was a primer for me. Meeting him in person allowed me to then go back and listen to, <laughs> to Roderick online and allowed me to, to, do, to do that kind of show. You right, know, we, right. You and I, people think that you and I uh, have been hanging out for years but we only met in person a few years ago. And, yeah, we've uh, only met three, two, two three, or three times. Three yeah. times? Yeah, something like that. Which yeah. sucks. I wish we would hang out more. But, uh, you know, the, it's, it's funny because you kind of – you develop a chemistry with somebody uh, that, you know, y- y- you were always the – before we met – even though I'd watched a lot of your talks and, and stuff like that. Like you were still like you're the voice in my headphones – guy as opposed to my friend in person who i do a show with right and i feel like that's an interesting uh, concept in a way uh, because when we met in person like for me uh, i guess because i'd seen you on so many videos you did the merlin show you've done so many talks and, and you're like you know you you talk into your shoe and things like that that um like i kind of knew more what to expect in a way. So meeting mm-hmm. John in person and, and then, and listening to them on the show, I think I had a, 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 a starting point in a way that I didn't, uh, didn't have with you. Yeah. Well, but then I mean, we have now, obviously. Well, this is like, it's a bit of a pivot, but I remember first hearing, mm, not so much the nineties, but the early to mid two thousands, I started hearing more and more stories about people obviously you, you make friends online, right? There, there are people that we consider really good friends that we only know through text and later on photos or maybe eventually video. But for a long time, people were making friendships, um, strange, a strange new kind of friendship, (laughs) kind of, I guess a little bit like a pen pal, Yeah. but you could get very close to somebody that way. And then I started hearing more and more stories about people like couples who met online. And now I, that used to be kind of a weird, like, Hmm, that's so crazy. Dating so weird. Yeah. Or just, yeah. Or just, yeah. But like, now I know, I feel like I know so many people who met that way Yeah, and it doesn't seem weird, but it's definitely compared to the way you think about growing up as a kid and you make friends based on like, who you happen to have uh, what we now call a play date with, like somebody you meet at the playground, somebody who happens to be in your class and your primary 
way of knowing them might be first, you know, like their face and then playing with them or, you know, going to Chuck E. Cheese or whatever. It's, it's, it's so different. Um, and in such a short amount of time, that's become a primary way we meet people. And then the next level of that that you're describing, I think, is how you can not know somebody, but you can know, in our case, their voice to where you feel like you're pals with them. I mean, I, totally. I feel that way when I when I meet people whose like shows I listen to. It still seems impossibly weird. Yeah, I mean, it's like talking to Santa or something. You know, when you first meet somebody and you're like, wow, this is really, I mean, I, I get that. Like when I have calls with people, which always <laughs> seems strange, but they're like, I can't believe I'm talking to you. I'm like, well, I can't believe I'm talking to you either. <laughs> yeah. How's it going? <laughs> yeah. It's so, it, that's funny all the time. Anytime that that happens. Um, and we get that a lot, like even with sponsors, because a lot of our sponsors are fans of the show, you know, or they, they're sponsoring because they like the show or they like uh, they like shows that, that we've done in the past and they're like, yeah, let's, let's try this show. And I'll, I'll talk to them and they'll say, oh, it's weird. Cause, uh, you know, I was just listening to you and now we're talking and I keep forgetting that I'm supposed to talk back because I'm so used to listening, you know, yeah. that's, that's a funny thing. And I think that, we, you know, in a way you meet, if you meet someone first and then you hear them, it's a completely different experience than, you know, meeting, you know, meeting them later. In a way. That's, that's a really interesting point because I've um, been thinking of people like I've been acquainted. I won't say I've been friends with Jason Snell for a long time, but I mean, I, I, I knew him from I'd see him at Macworld or whatever. And I enjoyed, uh, you know, his writing. And so I but I knew him when I met him. I knew him primarily by his writing. Right. And then I knew him a little bit as a person. And I mean, I'd like to think that we're friends now. Um, but like I. But, you know, so now when I listen to his podcast, it's, it's, it's kind of weird because now I do know him and I know his voice, but I, I, I still know his writing, but it's, it's, it pivots. It's, it's, it's a, it's a strange thing, but that's not nearly, but still like having a phone call with him or talking to, to Syracuse or Mike Hurley or somebody, it's still weird because as with you, my primary interaction with them is by, you know, hearing their voice or in this case, talking to you, but you know, I've heard your voice for years and years. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strange inexplicable experience, but I think it helps explain partly why podcasts have resonated so much not now that we're going completely up our own butts i, I think it's one reason podcasts really resonate with people for the same reason that radio resonated with people yeah. for years yeah. you know no i do i, I exactly why uh, I, podcasting is the new radio for sure and i remember like uh, jeffrey zeldman is a really good example of this i had been you know like an avid follower fan of jeffrey zeldman for years as i was learning web development learning web design and he had like the blog about design and he was the design guy back in the days when, you know, A-list bloggers were like, there were five of them, you know, <laughs> and he, and right. I remember reading this and just over time writing on HiveLogic, doing the tutorials, doing, you know, trying so hard to get into that sort of software development world. And then at one point, again, having never met him in person, he was in New York, I was in Florida and, uh, and, and you know, through these various connections, eventually having this amazing golden opportunity to like work on a project that he was running as a developer, it, it was like mind blowing. And here was a person who I'd ne then kind of developed a friendship with online and talking to over emails and eventually like, like he wanted to have a phone call. And it's like, oh wow. My, oh my God. Like, 
That's that's big. Selman wants to call me, like he's gonna call me, and then you know you have he's the, the he's the guy the guy with the hat and the orange sight. <laughs> that's right, and it, you know like then you have a phone call, and through the call you're like, oh, okay, he's like a he's like a person, he's like he's like me, and you know, if, and but still working with him on a number of different projects over the years, and then doing a show with him for years, and having never met, like we knew each other online for more than ten years and mm-hmm. never met in person, and. You know, it's just that kind of thing today is normal. It's normal. It's not weird, you know? No, I mean, um, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and like a lot of people, I suspect a lot. Of, I listen to stuff like, you know, um, public radio shows and things like that. But, you know, and, and a lot of independent, a lot of independent podcasts. But um, just in passing, there's a, a really interesting uh, I think quite good episode of This American Life this week. Um, yes, I'm suggesting you go and listen to like the most popular podcast in the world. <laughs> but it's, um, you've probably heard of it. But uh, it was about internet trolls and uh, it's really, really, really good. But, uh, you know, one of the things they talk about, and I, personally, I don't want to sound insensitive. I don't consider this trolling, but it's kind of about the massive amount of mail, email they get, specifically criticizing their female reporters because of the vocal fry. Oh, yeah. And because vocal fry is, is kind of a thing now. And I, you know, it's like me and, and gated snares in the eighties. Like, I don't <laughs> want to go into a whole thing about it, but I know people have strong feelings one way or another, but, um, but it, it also goes, it's, it's a testament to like how strongly you can respond to something as simple as somebody's voice in, in a certain context, you know, but, it, and I think the reason that stuff is so personal and people feel so strongly about it mm-hmm. is, I mean, I, I think secondarily, we look for connections on the web. I think that's the second part. I think the first part is a little more solitary, which is something more like, I almost want to say comfort, mm-hmm. but we, we look for things that are going to interest us, even if it is a primarily or uh, fundamentally one-way thing. It could be you just go to this website and you read it. I mean, certainly I don't... I don't know hardly any of the people whose stuff I read every day and they don't know me right. and that's how the internet works. But I think it starts out with the desire to find things that you will enjoy or that will interest you or that will, you know, uh, make you curious about other things. But then I, I think secondarily, the huge part of it is the connection part. And w- what's finally in this, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but that, that, that kind of is what makes the web writ large so interesting and strange right now is that we're putting the connection, the primacy of the connection part to some extent in front of the stuff part. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, like even in the 43 folders days, I remember going through a phase where I put every conceivable share this button in the world on the page and Mm -hmm. put this on the Facebook or, you know, remember when stumble upon was, was like giant. Yes. I was like, dig and stumble upon. We're always giving you like the most traffic because, you know, now, even if you don't know that person, you want to align themselves yourselves with what they're saying. It's a way of saying, I like this, or if it's a way of saying, I agree with this, or it's a way of saying, I want to argue about this. But, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what the next phase of that is as we spend so much time online, like, you know, grooming a version of ourselves for the world, but also then how we choose to align ourselves with people. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be very, very interesting. But there's still, there's like so many good people out there and it's really nice to meet them. And and and, and then just to sound like Mr. Fancy Pants, like it's really genuinely fun for me when I get to meet people 
like uh, I'll, I'll mention in a minute, we just did a live show of Roderick on the Line the yeah. other night in San Francisco. And it's it's great to meet people, you know, have people in the audience who, you know, you know, people you're going to know. And I've I've made a lot of really good pals that way. And it's it's the best. It's I guess what I'm saying is the Internet isn't all terrible. Right there, the and that, uh, I forget who I was talking to about this, but the extension of that is that the terrible parts. When you meet someone in person, it's a very different experience than when you meet someone online. And the things that people say to each other—good, I'm sorry, not good, but bad. Rather, these people would never say something like that in person. And I'll go further and say I don't even think they would think that in person. Like. You're an idiot if you don't like Python, for example. And this is probably not what that person would say to you in person if you sat down and said, uh, what do you think of Python? You know what I'm saying? Like, it would mm-hmm. be a completely different conversation that they probably wouldn't, to, to use your word, have as much vitriol about the opinion that they have. But there is that whole thing of, like, you're online and you're really big and bad online. You know what I mean? And and you can say what you want. And you can, in some cases, terrorize people uh, for a, 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 an opinion that they might have about a line of code. And, you know, and in real life, that person would pick you up from the airport if you needed a ride. But online, they're, they're this force of negativity that doesn't mm-hmm. always connect with who they really are as a person. And I mean, I... They're, and then they, that gets repeated a lot. Yeah. And when that gets repeated, that becomes... Uh, something I, I don't want to say. I want to say almost like a habit, but that kind of becomes who you are. Yeah, or who you may not even realize you're becoming is, right. is this particular character. But you know, it's it's also interesting because you know you think about how we all have to modulate our behavior for different situations, different people, different mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll toss out some uh, some nouns here: um, PTA meeting, uh, Chipotle. TSA line, DMV, uh, family dinner, yeah, guy uh, who just hit your car. And it's like in each one of those cases, you're about to deal with a stranger. And I think there's like a plus or minus 20% range of how you're very likely to behave with that person that's in the range of expectation or in the range of, but the way that the way that you talk to somebody when you're getting called up for jury duty is pretty different from how you talk to somebody when you're going to have dinner with them. And every adult understands that that's, that's what makes you not a crazy person is you modulate your behavior appropriately. If the judge is asking you a question during jury duty, you're not going to yell at them the same way you'd probably (laughs) yell at the person who hit your car maybe. And, but you, you know, you understand that otherwise you'd be what a sociopath, you know, it's just that, you know, um, you then kind of, you see that person's face and you know them, there's, there's primacy to their humanity in some ways. Not, not, not like capital H humanity, but the fact that they are like a person. And you would just, you would never be so undignified as to just like walk up to somebody at Chipotle, how can I take your order? Go, wow, you're fat. <laughs> or like your boobs aren't as big as I expected in the picture. <laughs> right, right. Like there's so many things you would never say. I mean, this is well, you know, trodden territory, but you know, that uh, I don't want to spoil that episode, but the, pri- the the main piece in that this American Life episode from this week is um, about a woman who writes for I think Jezebel, who got like mercil- mercilessly trolled by this guy, where he went and basically now I'm spoiling it. He basically went and created a Twitter account for her very recently deceased de- deceased father, and just said awful things to her. Found a picture of her late father, and just 
mercilessly like harassed her, said horrible things to her, and got all these different kind of sock puppet accounts and all the usual stuff. And um, you know, she's got to deal with a lot of that. But um, I, I <laughs> you won't believe what happens next. Um, I would say go listen to it. But but what what let's just say what she learns is that you know even that awful person is still a person, mm-hmm. and she ended up with a certain measure of sympathy for why that guy's the way he is. You know, and that's 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 the big leap, I guess. Anyway, John Roderick uh, was really good. He was very good, uh, quite entertaining, and uh, you know, I was so glad that people liked it as much as I did. <laughs> because you know what, like, I I have no idea what this show really is going to be about until we start doing it. Uh, we might toss around topics ahead of time, but um, I I sent him an email beforehand, and I said, hey, you know let's let's just talk and he's like yeah that's good <laughs> let's just talk and you know he whether or not he really listens to the show i have i have no idea but it i was very excited to to do it and i think it it turned into a pretty good episode of back to work as well so if you have well, not not, one, not to be missed i've added this to show notes i actually i thought the after dark was uh very entertaining and so the, the hour and 45 minute after dark episode is also in show notes dan where's uh tell people where show notes are uh, show notes can be found at 5by5.tv slash B as in brothers, 2 is in the number, W as in walrus, slash, and this is episode 206. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, want to tell me about something you like? I'd love to tell you about one of uh, two of our great sponsors today. The first one is FreshBooks. These guys are great, and uh, I know, Merlin, I know you use FreshBooks as well. Uh, we've used them for a while, way before they were a sponsor. And this is this is the thing about FreshBooks that, that, that makes them so great. And, and we love products like this that t- tries to take the pain out of something. They want to take the pain, in this case, out of invoicing. A lot of us are using spreadsheets to create invoices or Word documents or <laughs> things like that. This is not the most efficient way to do it. And as you'll find, as you start working in your business, uh, you, you start generating these invoices that you want to send to people, but you want to make that process simple. You want to make it painless. You want to send them an invoice and you want to know, did they get it? Did they open it? Have they looked at it? Are they going to pay it? FreshBooks is in the business of answering these questions and solving these kinds of problems. They're simple, they're intuitive, and it makes accounting less intimidating. You take your business with you wherever you go because they've got FreshBooks for iPhone and Android. You you, you can see when you send that invoice, which they send for you, you can see when the, the recipient opens it, when they've looked at it. So there's no more guessing around, oh, I wonder if they got it, I wonder if they pretending not to have gotten it, well, this lets you know that. You can send them in PDF formats. They will even print out an invoice and put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it and send it for you. I mean, on, pa- you, on actual paper, on actual paper for like the mom and pop businesses. If, if that's how the company wants the invoice, I mean, you got to pay for postage if you do that, but they'll do that for you. You don't have to even, even do any of this stuff. Really awesome integration with Google apps, Zendesk, Basecamp, MailChimp, live chat, Wufoo, Tons of different things that they'll integrate with. And uh, you've got real human beings doing free support. Uh, it's really, really great. And uh, I mean, you like I said, Merlin, I know you use these guys too. Yeah, it's funny. My, my journey with, uh, with FreshBooks has been so interesting because it started out, it, it could not, not be more like impossibly simple, which was that you said, hey, I'm using FreshBooks. It would be really uh, convenient if, if you use FreshBooks. And I was actually really satisfied with the uh, invoice 
service I was using. They're really good. They're still really good. But uh, FreshBooks has been amazing. And for the longest time, though, that's pretty much all I did was just, you know, doing that with you. And I started to really appreciate how easy it was to do. How And let me just do, this is a quick laundry list because we've never done this with FreshBooks. Okay. I mean, there's all kinds of little things. I'll keep this short, but it, it really is awfully easy to use. Yes, the iOS app is great. Um, I don't create a lot of stuff on there because you get more, a lot more flexibility in the web version, but uh, it's very easy to use. And there's, I, I think they're smart about their messaging. They're messaging their brand <laughs> because they don't they don't overwhelm you with all these bullets, but the bullets are worth knowing about. Like for example, I did something this week I'd never done before, which is I created an estimate, and I said, "Hey, all how's right. this estimate look?" And they go, "Oh, this estimate looks good." And then you know what you do? You convert the estimate into an invoice, and then you can do things. I I don't know how many people know this. You can track. You can do time tracking, so you can track hours against in like what your your budget for that is against that, and people you know will be able to see that, and you can report on that. Um, but the, you know they do stuff like they have a variety of gateways that you can use. PayPal, I think, is kind of the primary one. They have their own homebrewed one that you can hook it up to your Stripe account. It's um, it's it's a it's a really great service that takes care of something most of us uh, don't like thinking about, don't like dealing with, and uh, it it makes it very convenient. And I just I, I use them and I highly recommend them. They're very good, and they they have a special uh, deal for the. Uh the Back to Work listeners right here, freshbooks.com slash back to work spelled out. You'll get free for 30 days. And uh, when in the little uh, how did you hear about us section, you want to help out the show, you just put in back to work right there. So that's it. Free for 30 days. Freshbooks.com slash back to work. Link is in the show notes. And uh, wonderful, wonderful service. Don't know what we would have done without them for for the past and the future. They're great. And uh, we, you know what? Yeah, you can uh, you, you go on a trip. You can also scan in your little uh, your little receipts too. Oh, that's ninja level. Yeah, I hadn't got. Does, does it does it recognize? Stuff? It recon- oh, it recognizes. Oh, brother! I know it. That's so smart. So there you go. Freshbooks.com slash back to work. Thanks very much to Freshbooks for supporting back to work with Merlin Man. Bok bok. And can we pre- please promote your T-shirt? Is it still on sale? Can we promote? The I shirt? would love it if you promoted the T-shirt. Uh, and we'll, bureau. I have a. I have a, a, a an actual really good topic for today, but uh, the other pieces of John Roderick follow up uh, that are pretty fast. Um, this happened very very quickly. There for for years now. Um, <laughs> this three this three years or so. Roderick on the line's been around. And it's RoderickOnTheLine.com if you want to check it out. It's a podcast, whatever. Um, but but people people have um, been asking for merchandise, which is a nice thing. That's that's nice to hear from people. People started making their own Roderick on the Line stickers, and people send us photos of Roderick on the Line Super Train stickers they've seen around the world. Um, uh, th- thank you for the opportunity. We have a T-shirt that we are selling, a Super Train first ever artisanal small batch Roderick on the Line Super Train T-shirt that you can pick up. Uh, the easy audio version of this is bit.ly slash shirt, but it's also in notes for the episode. And uh, it's over at Cotton Bureau, which is really great to work with. You go in and you put up a design. I think the usual process is people kind of vote on whether they want the design, but uh, when you get enough to order, they take care of it for you and send it out. They're great to work with. They take care of all the heavy lifting. But uh, I, I really like this shirt. Jay Finelli at uh, Cotton Bureau 
I, I, I'd like to just say help with the logo, but basically he made the logo. He, <laughs> he, 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 we, we worked very closely with him and he was extremely helpful. He's the designer of the site and a really good guy. And, um, we kind of, it was a kind of a last minute thing that we decided, let's get this up. We got a live show in town. We might as well do this. The only thing is, first of all, please go, go at least look at the shirt, consider getting it because it is a time limited thing. The way Cotton Bureau works is you get the design up and then you have two weeks from the time the design goes up to order it. And then it's not available until, or unless it's you decide to print again. So uh, bit.ly slash super train shirt. And it's a, it's a very handsome shirt. What, what means super train? Wow. Where do you begin? Let me, what means super train? Uh, this goes back a long way. It's, I don't, episode you know, I, 25, I think. Oh, uh, there you go. There you go. It's, 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 it's a thought technology. And uh, it's basically, it, it's a kind of John's uh, utopian slash dystopian vision for the future where uh, he'll have a giant uh, train with a claw that allows him to uh, recycle things uh, into a slurry, uh, be able to produce a variety of items. It, it's a dark dystopian future and it's coming and uh, you'll never really be ready for it. Right. That's kind of what makes it super train. <laughs> Anyway, that was that was an er, an early um, episode that uh, really uh, kind of grabbed people. But yeah, please go check it out. We make money from selling these, so it helps us a lot. If you um, decide to pick one up, we got them in the you got them in the black, you got them in uh, red shirts, and uh, not not the Star Trek thing. Um, and then there's there's <laughs> some very handsome a very handsome pullover hoodie that you could get as well, and uh, they're priced to sell. So go have a look. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. Of course. Final, final piece of this. I am so sorry. We'll never talk about him again after this. Right. Is that we were at? I only mentioned this because we were at. Uh, John and I did a Roderick on the Line live at uh, SF Sketchfest on Friday night, as we record this last Friday night, and um, that's going to go up. Uh, it'll be available by tomorrow morning, Wednesday morning, the twenty uh, eighth. Um, a uh, our first ever published live episode of Roderick on the Line. And it's a uh, it's a bonus episode that we I think people will really like. It's uh, it, it turned out pretty good. It's hard to do live podcast things. Have you have you ever formally done? You've done this. You've rec- have you how often have you recorded a podcast in front of an audience and released it? Not very often because it is such a logistical nightmare and a quali- also, quality nightmare. Well, uh, I, I guess but I want to do it more. I'm gonna I want to do it more. I want to do one a week. That's a good idea. Well, there are certain kinds of shows um, that are conducive to that. I'm thinking of something like maybe like a Mac Power Users, mm-hmm. but something that's like a, a two-person topic type show um, is is conducive to that. I think when it's a Shucky Jivey kind of show, like Roderick, or I can definitely say with You Look Nice Today, it was very it was a very strange transition. To you did a to number of those for You Look Nice Today, right? Yeah, we liked maybe two of them. <laughs> we did a lot of them, and you know, we did. We even went at one point did like I don't know three or so shows in the Pacific Northwest at one point at, you know, Bridgetown Comedy Festival and we went to Seattle. We've done it in New York. We've done it a bunch of places and, you know, just because our bar for that show was kind of high. No, our bar for that show was high in terms of what we considered good. Um, you know, there's a bunch we didn't release. Um, but yeah, there's a couple. There's that one called Three is the Magic Number where uh, Scott has a... a stone wall in his shower that looks like Winston Churchill. It's pretty inspiring. <laughs> is he the funny one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. He's the, he, he is the funny one. Absolutely. But, um, so anyway, that's, I think that's it for that. If you enjoy thank you for this uh, extended segment about John Roderick and Roderick on the line. Um, we'll never speak of it again. Right. Then I'll, I'll edit this out for post. Okay. I'd appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> 
Um, I had uh, a couple ideas for topics from last time. I covered one of them. There was one other one. I don't know if you had a chance to look at this email, but I thought this was really interesting. Um, uh, listener Doug, last name withheld. He wrote a, a, an interesting email back in January. Let's see if I can find the actual first message. But he, he said something that I thought was really, um, I just thought it was a very good question because on he, we had just, you and I had just done a show where we talked about, um, we'd gotten at a topic we've mentioned before, um, Mihai, Csikszentmihalyi's idea of flow, mm-hmm. which is, you know, again, I'll mangle, I'll, I'll mangle this here, that uh, at a very high level of challenge and a very high level of skill, we go into a flow state where we tend to get, we can get very focused on a task. Time seems to sort of disappear and we just, I, I think of it as a, you know flow when you've got it. And then you really miss it when it's gone. And then um, I'll see if I can scare up that diagram again for show notes. But he has, there's a wonderful diagram from his book that shows what happens when you have varying levels of challenge and skill. As we said before, low challenge, low skill, you get apathy. Uh, low challenge, medium skill, boredom, <laughs> and so forth. Um, one of my favorites, like low, uh, low skill, high challenge, anxiety. Like all the different states. Like, you know, so... What are examples? You know, t- tagging MP3s. I'm really good at that. It's not super challenging, and I can just kind of do that. Right. It's just a thing I do. Doing the kids jumble, very relaxing. Like me being expected to translate something out of Mandarin is going to be very difficult for me because I don't even know how to begin doing it, and it's way too challenging. Well, why is this interesting? It's interesting to me because partly because I, I think it's a pretty sane general idea about how work can be maybe not rewarding, maybe that's the word, but how work can be absorbing and how as you get better at something, whatever that thing is, you're able to find a greater level of challenge. And in the way that I look at it in my model, which I'll talk about in a minute, is like the more, uh, the more skill you get, um, it's like the, the, more, the, the more that you, how am I going to mangle this? The better you get at something, um, the better you'll be able to do. It's like learning how to use your time teaches you how to use your attention. When you don't even know what to pay attention to when you're a rookie at something, it's very difficult to be a novice that does anything more than follow directions. But as you learn more and you get more expertise in any given skill, you also get more independence and you learn more about what you could do with it and you get more ability to synthesize information. So when you get to higher and higher levels of expertise, you can deal with higher levels of challenge and it also enables you to see things and patterns that nobody else can see. You know, as, as I'm fond of saying, when you've solved, it's, it's, it's great at the low level, there are those of us who have never solved a problem in a certain domain. And then eventually you get to where you solve some problems in a domain, maybe not very difficult problems, but as you move up, you eventually start failing at solving problems. And once you've solved and failed to solve problems in a certain area, that's expertise, right? That's where you get to know, like, where should I be focusing rather than just what is it I'm focusing on. And that was kind of the nature of Doug's question was, you know, isn't it interesting? The flow thing makes a lot of sense, but I wish I could find his exact message. But he said something like, I just spent, you know, however many hours fixing, uh, fixing this bug that didn't really, really need to be fixed, dealing with all this legacy code. And like, how, how is it to know like what you should be working on? Because even if you get a high level of challenge and a high level of skill, like what is it that kind of governs whether you're working on the right kind of problem? And uh, I'm, I'm almost done. Then, then the, I think the argument could be made that a big part of growing skill is learning whether you're solving the right problem. 
But does, does that, uh, have you ever had that experience? Have you ever gotten really good at solving something that ended up not being the right problem? Yeah, I mean, basically, that's the story of my entire life, I think, um, is trying to, you know, you, you kind of identify a problem that's there. And then you, I, you go through these great d- efforts to solve it only to realize, yeah, like what you're saying, like that was, that wasn't really what I should have been solving all along. And then you look at somebody else who correctly identified what the problem was. I have to, I, so may I, may I talk about that uh, thing that I was uh, messaging you about before the show? Um, sure. Is that related to this? Yes, it is. Um, yes. Okay. Let me get one more bit in because it is, it is related to this and it's, uh, in a way. Well, what's, what's funny is then like the next day, uh, he wrote me again to say, oh, I think you answered the question and actually I'm right on the line. Um, which is that thing I'm fond of saying that are you solving the right problem on the right level for the right reason, which is this thing that I, it just keeps coming up for me where like, you know, what, what are, what are examples of this? I mean, there's the basic expertise problem of, and it's, it's difficult to know how good you are at something until you're pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. And, and the anti-pattern. And, or until or, someone tells you that you're good at it, or until you realize that you've had some degree of success doing it where others have not have that, have had that degree of success doing it. I guess, it. That, yeah, I think that that comes in time, but I think another part of that, another way to look at that is that, you know, in your, a, a perfunctory way to put it is just because you haven't failed colossally doesn't mean you're that successful because you need to, if you think about the people you've worked with in companies who are really, really great, the real wizards at a company, it's the people who have an ability to see a pattern that nobody else can see because they've seen what can go wrong, what can go well. And then famously, uh, you know, as the Dreyfus brothers have said, the interesting thing about a high level of expertise becoming a, an expert at something is that sometimes it's difficult to articulate exactly why it is that you know a solution is the right solution Mm -hmm. but it's something where you've done it so much that you're now able to it's not even a matter of like self-confidence or imposter syndrome it's not any of that stuff it's more a way of going like i now know enough about this area and the related areas to be able to know where to where to focus my resources my time and attention which is i think very difficult to do even up through um you know uh, a, a level of proficiency right like you might be you know, it's, you could think about like working at McDonald's and like, you know, you've managed to make burgers without burning them. But then you get to that level where you've got to be like a swing manager who's going, well, I know like I'm higher than a fry cook, but I'm not like a, an assistant manager mm-hmm. where you've done, you've made so many burgers over so many months that you now know, well, it's 1115. And even though there's nobody in the store right now, I know there's going to be some people in the store pretty soon. So yeah. let's start making some burgers. How do you know that? Well, it, you know it because it's, it's, it's time. But then, then how do you get to the point where you know, oh, you know what? This store is not profitable anymore and people are moving out of the neighborhood. <laughs> like being able, it's, it's a long road to go from frying burgers to knowing whether the store should even be open. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, and there's, you know, it's for us as outsiders and armchair commentators, we can always look at those things and go, well, obviously in retrospect, that's what you should do. But, uh, I just wanted to toss that out because that, that always interests me. Well, it's um, like talking about reading the writing on the wall. You know, it's, it, there is that sense that you have that it's time to do something different or it's time to try something different or it's time to launch this thing. And it always astounds me when people can read that 
You know, what is it that the, and then, and then you realize that, oh, wait a minute, I do that. But you know what? I may do that with my daughter when I can just tell she's tired. I remember before uh, I ever had oh, kids. That's, a, that's actually a great example. Well, thanks. I remember before I, I ever had kids, I could see, you know, my parents would, uh, my friends who were parents, they'd be saying, oh, well, she's tired. Like, well, what do you mean? Oh, you can just, she's tired. We need to, you know, Dave, we need to do something and, and about this. And the person, <laughs> you're at the person's house and they go, wait a minute, your kid's smiling and laughing and running in circles. They can't be tired. And you go, well, they're not tired yet, but in like five to 22 minutes, they are going to crash <laughs> right. so hard. They're going to hurt themselves. And then the tears will come. Right. And let's leave while it's fun. Yeah. And it's funny because my, my wife is much better at that with our daughter than I am. And she can say, oh, she's tired, you know, time, time to, to, to change the game up a little bit. And how do you know when something is tired? How do you know when in your business something is tired or in your work something is tired and you need to make a change? Mm-hmm. It's, it's that gut instinct from just being around it so much. And there are people who, I'm guilty of this so many times, who you ignore the signals. You know, there's that philosophy of, um, not taking no for an answer and pushing ahead and refusing to, you know, to accept any kind of failure. But there is that point where you've got to look at that and say, wait a minute, mm-hmm. I'm just being stubborn about this. The writing's on the wall and I've, I've got to make a change or I've got to, you know what, let's shut this store down because if we're going to lose, we're going to lose this much if we shut it down now. But if we keep it open for another six months, We'll lose that much. That's it's exactly right. And you know this the, the example I gave a few uh, weeks or months ago about when I was a waiter. Yeah, and like I, I got okay at being a waiter within a few weeks during the busy tourist season. And I, but I had no idea. It not I didn't know enough to think. I mean, what I thought about was I'm going to keep going to work. You know, three or four days a week. I'll make this much money, and that'll just be a thing I do. I gave no thought to that much about the future apart from knowing I'd eventually graduate from college. But in my head, I thought of it as like, like a mini career. And then, like I said, the, the person who was in charge of the waiters is like, Oh no, no, you'll be gone in a couple of weeks. The season's almost over. We're going to fire half of you. You, there's no work for you here. Right. And I hadn't gotten to the point where I could, I could realize that because I had enough experience to not spill coffee on a German tourist, <laughs> but not enough expertise <laughs> to know what the, even the, even the smallest, the second smallest arc of a job like that is the smallest arc, I guess is, you got tables, you have tables in a day, you have a week of work, but I hadn't even been there for like, you know, three months. So like I had no experience with the seasonality of it. Similar thing. Right. Exactly the same thing. Exactly. The seasonality is, is a very, you know, because there you were just sort of thinking you were going to continue on with this and that was never in the cards for you. Well, and this is, yeah. And it goes back to, I want to pivot to your thing here, but like the, the this goes back to a really old back to work kind of idea uh, I guess what you, I don't love this term, but risk aversion, Yeah. where when you're uh, starting out at something, I think we tend to understandably be somewhat risk averse. We don't, we, on the one hand, uh, we don't want to do anything that would make us less good at our job or would make us not appear less successful. But really the primary thing is we don't want to lose that job. So it's, the thing is when you're at a, you know, at a fairly low level type of job or you're learning a new job, maybe you're like an intern, a trainee, something like yes, that. Right. You're mainly thinking about survival. <laughs> no, um, that's so, that is so true on, on a, on a personal level. Yeah. And, and, but that ends up working against you if the real survival instinct is to know when it's time to get a different job. Well, I've told this story a bunch of times on uh, quick grid, but there was this time where I was, I had, uh, I had left this, I was working in a very big company 
and I went to be like a director of technology at this little, what we would now call a startup back then was just called a small business. And instead of doing what I thought they were hiring me, they were hiring me to be a technology director. It's, it's like, this is a big move up, right? Like I'm getting a raise. I have a cool title. I'm going to have a little office. This was big stuff for me. But mm-hmm. the reality of it was they sort of wanted me to babysit their content management system. And like that, that was what I was really going to be doing. And when I sort of discovered that, and discovered that many of the people that I'd interviewed with in in real life were, you know, they were focused on other things and not, they were cool, but like they, I wasn't actually going to get to work with them at all. I was going to be in a room babysitting a CMS. But part of it was part of the appeal, that title? Yes, absolutely. I would say that that was at least a third of the appeal of the job, but I realized very quickly that this was not the job for me. Well, I couldn't go back to my old job. That's not, you know, maybe if you go from one small company to another and you go back, oh, guys, I made a mistake. Let me back. They might do it. But this was like a big corporation and my paperwork had been processed and I was gone. And, you know, I. Is this I, the one where you didn't find out initially oh, that was a different job? Where I just showed up and the doors were locked? No, that was, yeah. that was different. This place stayed in business. Okay. But, uh, but you know, I went and, and I was going to work. And for, you know, the week or two that I was there, two weeks probably, uh, I knew I was unhappy. And so finally, when I was, you know, when they were going to fire me, but I quit first uh, and didn't, didn't know much about severance and things like that and what I was missing out on, uh, the, the guy who was my uh, theoretical boss said, uh, well, why didn't you just, why didn't you just quit? And, you know, like on the second day, why didn't you just quit? You know, the guy drove a BMW uh, seven series, you know what I'm saying? Like he could quit a job and go and find another one when he found the right one. I couldn't not have the paycheck. So mm-hmm. I couldn't quit the job just because I was going to take the moral high ground. This job's not for me, boss. It's, I've, I've got to go. See you later, you know? And not wasting their time because, like, I needed the money. I took the job and, you know, they told me it was going to be one thing and it wasn't that. I'm not holding them accountable for that completely. I I should have known probably. But, like, I didn't have the luxury of saying, you know what? I'll just – I'll quit. takes me a couple months to find the right thing. It's all right. No, I couldn't couldn't do that. And, like, how how could I have explained to him – at this early stage of my career when, you know, like my wife and I would go to Chili's for dinner and we would share one Coca-Cola between us to save the money on getting the Coca-Cola. Like I didn't have the luxury to say, oh, I'll just, I'll just, no, that's why, you know, that's why I didn't just quit. Right. Uh, you're very much in that survival mode and it is to your own detriment because you can't see above the weeds because oh, there are only weeds to you. Well, and all you're you're yeah, you're on something interesting that I I don't think ever really goes away which is like it's hmm it's it's a little bit about learning a subtlety is that the right word but there's there's nothing wrong with trying to save money or have security or to be responsible. There's nothing bad about all of those things. It's partly the um, the deceptive idea that by doing these kinds of over-conservative things, you'll take care of those things, and, which is not to say you should go and be careless, but, you know, at the same time, I'm, I'm, I don't know why, I'm thinking of that movie Whiplash uh, that's out where uh, the guy from Oz plays this really mean band leader who demands, like, ridiculous amounts of uh, just, I mean, it's, he's a very, very demanding band leader, and it's a really good movie, um, but uh, 
without spoiling it, I'll just say that like you start to see that you, you realize that what he wants, it's almost like he's, he's not training a monkey. He's trying to train a Marine. Uh-huh. Like he wants you to become somebody who, who will at some point rebel. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're trying to make somebody who can operate on their own and not, I mean, he needs you to follow his instructions exactly and, you know, play along with all of his little mind games and stuff like that. But eventually you're looking for someone who makes a giant step above that to eventually become better than him. Mm -hmm. Like what he wants, what he wants to do is make a musician who's better than he is, which is not, not the kind of thing he would ever say. And it's certainly not the kind of thing you would ever realize in the, in the rehearsals or the classes or whatever. But that's, that's kind of what you're describing is, Thinking that, you know, hewing to the most conservative line will protect you. And as Alan Watts has taught us, that that's nonsense. Mm-hmm. The desire for security is exactly what keeps us insecure. That's a great line. He's good. You ever read that book, The Wisdom of Insecurity? I have not read that one. It's a little, little tiny book uh, that's, uh, that's awfully good. Awfully good. Putting it into the show notes now. Um, Paperback like- 945. What time is it? Do you want to do another sponsor now? Or you want to wait a few minutes? Uh, no, let's let's do it now, and then we can uh, jump into the next thing. Our second sponsor, our final sponsor of the day, is uh, a wonderful little company called Smile. They are the makers of PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone version two. Has some really cool stuff in it. It lets you edit your PDFs anywhere you are. You can do things like uh, what sign a contract. You can jot notes. You can make highlights. You can uh, make changes to the document. You can fill out applications. All of this stuff right on your favorite iOS device. You've got uh, they, all of these new, what, what they call, prof- and I agree, professional level features are coming in here. So you get this mobile PDF editing. So here's some things that they have. Uh, they have an editing bar that gives you access to all the little tools and the properties and stuff. You don't have to go searching through the app to get it. Palm and wrist protection when writing and highlighting. You can apply password encryption to PDF documents. This is all from your app. It's got iCloud Drive integration. It's got AirDrop integration. Uh, everything right there, like the annotations in the sidebar. And, of course, they have all the old stuff that, that you like. You can add text. You can add images. You can put signatures in the PDFs. You can pretty much anything you would want to do with a PDF, you can do this. And uh, they've got a couple really cool blog posts. Uh, if you go to the link that we put into the show notes, you can see those. But, uh, like, number pages, yeah, there's something as simple as that, like numbering pages. How does it complete my bundle pricing work? All of this stuff is is there. And they made a special URL just, just for you guys, smilesoftware.com slash B2W. And that link will also be in, in the show notes as well. So smilesoftware.com slash B2W. This is one of those little utilities. Once you realize what it can do, you will wonder how you ever got along without it. So uh, thanks very much to Smile for, A, for making a PDF pen. And two, for, for sponsoring uh, Back to Work with, uh, with Merlin Mayo. Great company. They make magic stuff. They really do. That, that's, um, I introduced some people to Text Expander for something I was doing last week, and it was like magic. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the people, this is just another one of the small products, but they make the kind of products where, where you go, oh, I had no idea that this piece of my life could be so much better. You know, in this case, it was somebody who answers a lot of very similar kinds of emails. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, well, then I made them one of those little pop-up forms, showed them how to make a form that will let them very easily, like in this case, confirm an interview or a Skype call. And, uh, and she was just blown away. It's like, I I had no idea that anything like this existed. And you describe it to people and it's like explaining a magic trick. You know, you really have to see it and use it to get it. And then that's, that's what Smile's great at. Thank you very much to Smile. 
small software to come slash B2W. So uh, you're going to stick on your idea? I, I like it. I no, no, I like it. You said, I'm right. I'm just looking for what you said here. Okay. So you, I, I like I, the concept of practice, practice and effort versus luck. Yes, because uh, I've talked many times about something and I've realized the reason that I talk about it uh, with such admiration is because it's something that, although I kind of do it, uh, by by releasing shows on a regular basis, there's this concept of of uh, of doing something in a that is a is a small project, a series of tasks that you do and you do it the I don't want to say the same way, but you do it on a consistent basis over and over again, many times a week. And, and an example of this is producing content. So if you produce content, whether it's a blog post that you're writing, an article that you're writing, a code that you are creating in a consistent way, uh, if you're doing, you know, testing, there's a lot of people that, that, that do Q&A testing. I mean, obviously, we do it in the form of podcasts, uh, but producing something in a consistent, repeatable way. Even though the content that you're creating might be changing, the fact that you sit down like Andy Anako sits down and he writes, he writes an article and he comes out with the article, then he writes another and he has several articles that he's working on uh, over a given period of time. He's putting them together. He's reviewing this phone. He's writing this thing. He's doing, and he publishes them on a consistent basis. Uncrate.com, really good example. My friend runs that site five posts a day, five days a week, all the time, year after year after year. And producing this kind of content, not when you feel like it, and not necessarily on the deadline that your boss tells you that you have to produce it, but producing it in a consistent way. We come out with a new screencast every week or every two weeks or whatever that thing is. We create a podcast every afternoon at three, whatever. But doing that kind of thing on that consistent way, you know, recording back to work every week for, you know, 205 episodes up till now. Uh, that, that kind of stick to is something that, that I admire so much. And it's what kind of makes me, me, making me think about this is that a friend of mine had a company that just got acquired. And, uh, this is the second friend who has had a company acquired by this company. And, uh, it's, it's always, it's, really just so interesting because what makes both of the companies that were acquired here stand out is on the one hand, they produced really great content, but they did it consistently and they continuously improved the thing that they were doing. And they, not only that, but they kind of went where the market was and put their products in that space, the way that made sense for that particular industry and pushed really hard in that space. Whether there was competition or not, and in both cases there was, they pushed really hard in that space and they did it by showing up every day and doing something that was really good every day. Right, right, right. And there's no shortcuts there's to no this. no shortcut, exactly, yeah. And that's so hard to do. And, it, and there's, it's like a certain person seems to be cut out for that. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, for other people, it, it seems to be really hard to do. And I think we've talked, going back to the whole flow concept, uh, that I've talked to other developers and writers about this. Those are the, the you know, I, I don't know if it works the same in media of like, which I consider podcasting to be like media. But for many years, I was writing code or I was designing websites and I talk and or writing, writing like, like you, you've done. And it seems like there's this ebb and flow of what, of, of the way that I would want to produce stuff. 
So like I might work really hard for two or three weeks, you know, 12 hours a day, five, six, seven days a week, producing, 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 producing. And I'd hit whatever that deadline was, whether even if it was one I just set for myself, where I'd be living and breathing this code or this system or this thing that I'd be you, working you like, on. You start to really live inside of that. And yes, Exactly. You think about it, you dream about it, you wake up writing lines of code in your head or whatever, and then you, you, you rush down and you're working, 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 working. And then after that, it's kind of like I might spend a week or two where I wasn't doing nothing, but I was kind of doing nothing, you know, <laughs> for, mm-hmm. for another week or two. And then he'd kind of ramp back up into something else. And it was like there were these patterns where I just wouldn't feel like writing any code at all. But in the back of my mind, I knew that, well, in a week or so, I'm going to get that bug where I've got to start writing it again, not code bug, but like that Mm -hmm. thing that makes me want to do it again. And I think that's a normal pattern for people in, in what I would consider to be a very creative space, whether it's writing or coding or designing or whatever it is you're doing. And I, I feel like that doesn't work well if there's this pressure on you to show up. And I always think of Rob, who is this, this great writer. He used to work a couple cube rows down. And Rob would show up at nine in the morning and at 12 noon, he'd stand up, go to lunch. He'd come back. He'd be back at his desk at one and he'd work until six. And he did this five days a week and he had the most consistent output of any writer I've ever known. It was always great quality writing and he'd show up and he'd do it and he'd do that five days a week and then he'd leave. And that was his thing. And he got two weeks of vacation, which he would take, you know, right at the same days each week. You know what I mean? Like year after year after year doing this. Hmm. That is hard, I think, for a lot of people to. to it's, it's, it's also have it's hard to. Ex- yeah, well, and it's funny because as you're describing all of this, we all can see examples of that in our lives, like with people we know, or in some cases with ourselves. But it's very difficult to teach that, except by kind of demonstrating in retrospect what that person did. But I mean, the the obvious thing is that there is not there's not a as you say there's not a shortcut for that. There's not really a, a tips and tricks component to uh, not just getting good at that, but to disappearing mm. into whatever the thing you're learning is. And I think you're right. I think it does really help to have a certain kind of personality type. It helps to have a certain kind of interest. Uh, it helps to have a certain kind of maybe mania for it. I mean, if you think about the people who get great at something, stay great at something, you know, there's a kind of madness to it where you you don't even have to decide to not do other stuff. You just know that that's the thing you're going to do. And, you know, I, I've had access to that at times, but I really admire it in other people. Um, even though, you know, it probably does have its downsides. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 the part that, for our listeners, I mean, you guys know this, the part that makes that challenging is it's, I don't think that's an easy thing to teach. Right. I certainly have not found it an easy thing to learn. It's sometimes you find yourself having gotten absorbed in something and, and do, as you say, doing it over and over. But I don't think, I, I mean, I'm not, I suspect there are habits that tend to support doing that and getting started with that. But it really is just like you say, it's a matter of repetition and, and habit. Habit. That's a big part of it too. And what we integrate as, uh, as a habit and make a, a habit is such a, such a, a, a challenge, I think, for, for so many people because we want, to, you know, we talk, we talk about New Year's resolutions and... I was thinking about that. I was thinking about doing a redux on that and asking people how the resolutions are going. Yeah, right, a month in. Because that's something that... Uh, well, we don't want to get into it this episode, but 
it's it's that it's that creation of habits you know creating a new habit to do to replace an old one snapping the rubber band that we've talked about so many times and trying to understand that mechanism in our brain that you know it just even when I do those things that that I need to do on a regular basis, whether it's doing a show on a certain interval or writing something, how easy it is for some people to just fall into that groove where if they don't do it, it feels weird. It feels wrong. Yeah, but you know, I think all the many of the things, several of the things that you're talking about share something common, which is that they, whether it's a, a resolution or a desire to improve yourself, whether it's a new skill you're trying to turn into a career, um, whether it's a habit that you're trying to build, I think one big piece of the failure for those things to stick is that they never, they continue to retain a sense of otherness. It, it kept feeling like something that's not equals equals you. And right. you don't really realize until you wake up one day and go, oh, that's that's what I do now. Like, that's that's the thing that I've done and I'm getting better at it. And I can feel it. I can see the difference. I can see patterns I couldn't see before. But, you know, specifically in the case of something like, and I don't want to beat it up, but something like a resolution is it, it still is sort of like this little hat on a rack in another room that you have to remember to go put on your head every day. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't become something like brushing your teeth. Or taking your shoes off when you come in the house or parking in the garage. It hasn't become something that you don't have to think about anymore. And I mean, and and I want to clarify, because I think this is where it gets interesting. When you say you don't have to think about it anymore. Well, you don't have to think about doing it anymore. But the ones who are great, the ones you're describing, are the ones who don't have to think about doing it. And yet they think intensely about getting better at it. That's, and I have an anecdote here. Uh, but but isn't that part of it? I mean, you don't have to go, oh, I guess I better go do that tutorial today. Or I guess I better go brush my teeth. That's a thing I should do. I didn't do that yesterday. I should do it today. It has to be something like, again, that phrase, you have to like live inside of it. I um, watched the American Masters documentary on Ricky Jay, who's a, you know, many people know him as an actor, but he's an illusionist. He does card tricks. He does things with dice. He's just... You know, he's, if you go, just go to YouTube and search for Ricky Jay. And even if you're not a magic fan, and I'm not particularly a magic fan, I, I find him just amazing to watch because his performances are like just unbelievable. The stuff that he does, you're just like, well, how are you doing that? That's completely crazy. But you know, once you are interested in Ricky Jay and he calls them the effects, the magical effects that he does, you got to get interested in Ricky Jay, the person, because he is really, really fascinating. And he's like patient zero for the kind of stuff we're talking about right here why I mention him because you know for one thing a couple things he's just like incredibly absorbed in the long history of magic particularly in the last like 200 300 years but like he's he's a student he sought out like the the greatest living sleight of hand artist of his time and like went and said look I want to work with you and like he knows all the people he knows the history he knows the ins and outs he knows the tricks that's one piece of it so you know, and that's not just like a going and re- reading Wikipedia thing. He's written numerous books on this. He's had two different uh, stage shows directed by David Mamet about his magic. And they're all great to watch. So that's just testimony on its own. But here's the really, the thing you get about him is that, I mean, it's funny. Every like interview you see with him, almost every interview, anytime they're just like showing Ricky J being Ricky J, he's always doing one thing, which is doing stuff with a deck of cards. <laughs> he's always got a deck of cards. And he's always shuffling them. And he says, I'll just sit here and just shuffle these for eight hours. 
and he can shuffle like every way that you can imagine. But what I'm getting at is he said, there was one quote in this, in this PBS uh, documentary where he said something about, you know, it's just everybody he, he knows who does this had some point in their life where they're spending like eight to 15 hours a day doing nothing but like playing with a deck of cards, you know, learning, learning effects, learning fans, learning shuffles, learning all these flourishes and basically learning all the, all the, all the tricks. But, but even when he wasn't just learning the trick, like every time he shuffles the deck, he's mindfully trying to shuffle the deck better than he did it last time. Hmm. I mean, obviously this guy is beyond the top 1% of sleight of hand people living today. And yet every day he still thinks about that. He still thinks about, and it isn't something where he has to remember to pull out a deck of cards at a restaurant and say, Hey, I'm Ricky J. He's just always, always doing that. And, and, and I wish I had the exact quote in front of me. I just was watching this last night, but he says, you know, that's, that's the thing is that, you know, that it's, it's a focused effort. Every time you do the effect, potentially thousands and thousands of times with nobody else in the room. He just sits in front of a mirror and works on his effect over and over and over again. But every time he does it, he is hundred percent mindfully focused on every aspect of how to make it better. Look, make it look better from this angle, be able to do it better this way, be able to do it with one hand, be able to do it with the other hand, be able to do it when somebody didn't even know I had a deck of cards. Like there's all these ways you just really get how he's completely absorbed in what he's doing. And so when we hear things like that, you know, this is what I got from your text this morning. You know, when we hear things like the oft quoted 10,000 hour thing, like how do you get great at something? You do it for 10,000 hours. Well, the thing I'm getting from that is that it's those 10,000 hours don't matter unless it was a very focused and mindful 10,000 hours or however many hours, you know, why can some people get so good at something? Well, sure. So a lot of it's skill or talent or maybe luck. I doubt it. But what it really comes down to is that keeping in mind like constantly thinking about what it is that's going to make you better at this. And that's, that's such a fundamentally different thing from remembering to even pick up the deck of cards. I love that. I'm sorry. That was really long. No, you should watch that. Do you, uh, have you seen him do his stuff before? No, I, no. I think we've talked about him on the show. Before. Yeah. That was the only time. No, I, I mean, but it's that you've seen it, the movies, you've seen him in boogie nights and stuff. Yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's, it's such a different thing. You have thing. to and want like, to do it. You have to like doing it. You have to want, to 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 do it and you have to enjoy the craft aspect of it and you have to enjoy the process of doing that or else it becomes menial and tiresome and you know like i i often used to read whenever i was when i was very much into the um the meditation part of the buddhist practice and i was always reading about walking meditation which seemed strange to me because like in even though i'd known about that as a practice it's one of sort of the three core practices in the vipassana uh, or insight meditation tradition whereas one is what you would call just straight insight or vipassana meditation where you're sitting on the floor and on your cushion and you're watching the breath and that type of thing. And then there's metta, which is this uh, also called loving kindness, which is a different kind of meditation. And then there's like walking meditation, which just, it, that was the one that was always like, huh. Is, is, is metta, it's, it, it is technically its own different kind of meditation? I would categorize it as that. Yeah. So interesting. Because it's, yeah, it's a different, I'll, I'll find some, some things to put into Yeah, the, I've been, I've been, notes. I've been, reading and listening to a lot about that. And so it's very interesting it's to me. It's a very interesting practice that uh, for a lot of people, myself included, doesn't come as naturally as like straight up meditation does. Yeah. You know, what is it, you know, may, may, may you be safe, may you be well. 
Yeah. Those kinds of things. Yeah. Right? And, and wishing. It's basically wishing. It's, and what's interesting about it, in the, there's an insight, uh, you know, a Gil Fronstall talk on, on, on that that I thought was interesting, which is he makes a, a distinction that I'll probably butcher right now. But he says it's not just a matter of like saying, hey, I hope everything turns out great for everybody. Right. It's more like finding something in yourself. It's a, finding this desire in yourself or this finding the, the wish for things to be better inside right. of yourself. It kind of. Yes, that's very. It's, it's pretty subtle. It is very uh, uh, subtle and, and it's sort of happy, healthy, safe, and peaceful, but you're directing that toward yourself, toward loved ones, toward strangers, toward enemies, if you will. And this whole practice sounds kind of lovey-dovey and weird, and it, it's hard for us as uh, I think um, maybe I'm speaking too broadly, but— It feels weird at first. It, it feels it does very feel weird. Hip- it feels hippie Hippie, at first. yeah. And, uh, and, but it's actually a really beneficial, challenging process. And it wasn't until I heard one of the, um, uh, the IMC folks talk about it as an antidote for fear, because it's impossible for you to feel anxiety or fear if you're feeling this kind of loving, aspirational wish for yourself or for other people. You can't feel those two emotions at the same time. You just, you can't. So it's that a, was, it's, a, it's a big hack because yeah, yeah, <laughs> even, it is. even if you're not intending it as a, an anti-anxiety thing, it, um, it forces you to sort of almost like put the troll on that This American Life. It forces you to see a certain kind of um, worldwide humanity in, in everything. Yep. Where suddenly, instead of constantly obsessing on all the threats, real or imagined, there's something much broader to it where you're you're trying to see something uh, more positive in everything. Very, very astute. And you know, you start out in this practice, and it it, it for a lot of people just like it doesn't connect the same way, and it takes a lot more work. And it's like, well, like I don't I don't love anybody. Well, you got to love somebody. You love yourself, right? So do you love your? You always cat? you start you start with you. Start with yeah. you. You know, do you love? Is it easy to? Share that feeling toward like your cat or your dog. Okay, we'll start yeah, like there. Move out to the most important person in your life. So <laughs> right. You can get with that, right? Yeah. And then you just, you gradually do that. And it, you know, it, it, it really, I forget now what I was even going for. Oh, I was talking about the three practices and walking meditation and like you know, this whole concept of being mindful while you're walking and mindful of the steps and mindful of these different things. And that kind of expands out. And, you know, having this kind of practice that you do and expanding your practice is what they're always talking about in, in Buddhism, because like it gets boring. You can be having these amazing experiences. It's not what it sounds like is right. the thing. The walking meditation, which I've experimented with a lot in the, a little bit in the past, it's a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah. It isn't just walking. It's not just taking a walk. Right. It's, it's more like, you know, it's so in some ways it's harder than sitting because it's more like a full body thing. It's really yeah, weird. It's very weird. I took you off your topic. Yeah, that's all right. I don't remember what it was. I added a link to the loving kindness uh, meta page on Audio Dharma. Cool. That's where you a good get one. lots of these lots of these talks. Good um, stuff. Well, you're right there in Redwood City, right by you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Probably down by the Target. Yeah, over by uh, Briar. Mm-hmm. Two. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's I, I I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Hard stuff. Hard stuff because, like you know, it's um. But it's that daily. It's the daily practice of something. You know, meditation is a that's daily a good way to put it. daily that's, that's, practice, right? 
Yeah, it's 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 a really good way to put it because you know it's the funny part is like I guess maybe until you're a lot older and have gotten good at a lot of things, which I don't really I only count myself in one of those, is that um, you haven't may not have had enough experience at having gotten great at something in a healthy way. You know, maybe you become the class clown because you were bullied, right? You know, maybe, you know, there's all kinds of ways where you learn a a certain kind of thing in sort of an odd way. But like, you know, it's to get to an age where you could potentially do anything. um, I still think there's a tendency to look way beyond the stuff that's right in front of you and to even be really distracted by the things that are in front of you. Like you're thinking like, oh, I should be a doctor while you're forgetting the fact that you're really good with fixing engines. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing undignified at being somebody who's great at fixing engines. Right. And, but you could feel like a total failure because you never went to medical school. There's all kinds of ways where like you may not even look, you may not be aware of the kinds of skills that you're really good at because they did come easy to you or because you had to do them over and over. You know, and those end up being kinds of skills that you can apply to other things and you can kind of piggyback onto that. And I think that's an ongoing journey to like get better. It sounds corny, but I really believe that it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to even know what to get better at until you're kind of good at something. I never get sick of talking about this. I, I find it endlessly fascinating. Well, me too. JXPX777. A uh, magician? A, an illusionist? Yes. An illusionist asks, uh, is there, okay, hang on. Uh, okay, here. Is it easier to establish a habit or break one you want to stop? Asking that in the chat room. That's a good question. I think it's based on, um, in some ways, on your motivation um, for doing it, maybe. I don't know. Um, the, in some ways, it's the, well, here, uh, here's the trick. The trick part of that question is that when we're trying to build a habit, it isn't like we start out saying, um, I think I would like to start doing crank every day. It isn't like you start out wanting to build a bad habit. It's that you discover that there's a less than positive habit that's emerged. Those are hard to break because you never realized you were building it, right? It's in in some ways for the same reason that it's hard to build a new good habit is because in either case, you have to change something that was fundamentally automatic before. You know, if it's something, if you, if there's something that you do without really having to think too much about it, or if it's something where you find yourself doing something on a regular basis, whether you want it or not, that's a habit, right? Where you would have right. to, when it get when, once something gets to the point where you don't have to think about whether you'll do it and you probably don't even think about how often you do it, that's a habit. Whether that's checking your watch or going running or, you know, any of the good or bad things. If you do something over and over without having to decide you're going to do it, I would say that's a habit. If you're still deciding to do it, it's not quite a habit yet, right? So if you always smoke a cigarette after dinner, that's a habit. Right. Uh, if you'd like to run after dinner, then that can be a habit, but you have to do that until it stops being something you have to think about doing. That, that's very reductive, but I don't know which one's harder. Um, I think building, because you know, in some ways, most of us, when we're trying to build a new habit, we're tacitly trying to stop an old habit, right? I mean, it isn't, it's, I mean, I, I think it's probably kind of rare. If you're somebody who already exercises for an hour every day mm-hmm. and you do, I don't know, what you do, CrossFit or you go to the gym or you run, I'm going to guess that building a habit of doing a different kind of exercise for an hour a day is not nearly as hard as first starting to exercise for an hour a day because it's very foreign. It requires a lot of, it requires you to do something mindfully or purposefully um 
that's very different. But then Tasli also requires you to not do another thing that you probably were doing. So if you used to sit around and look at Twitter during that time, mm-hmm. you have to, you're kind of doing two things at once. You're, or whatever, I'm being reductive, but you know what I mean. If you used to spend uh, 6.30 to 7.30 every morning uh, listening to the news and you'd like to spend it running, you have to build the habit of running while also undoing the habit of right. listening to the right. news at that right. time. It's like, you know, time is a, kind of a fixed resource in that way. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting though, like what the people, it's almost like in the way people always talk about how, oh, I'm really distracted by all of these things. Well, you know, isn't it funny that like our distractions are so absorbing? Like, you know, like I say, if you can spend four hours on Facebook, you're not really that distracted. You're just not doing the thing that you thought you should be doing. They're kind of different things. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, Jamie's an interesting guy. Cause I mean, I've seen him do, uh, you know, do magic, do illusions, whatever the right term for it is. Uh, illusions. And it's like, uh, it's a lot of work. He also does, does he let you behind he, the, the, the scenes? Does he explain what he's doing or does he just kind of, no, you know, no, drop no, the you're mic, not allowed to do away. that. They'll drum you out of the, uh, the union for that. If you can become an apprentice, then you get to learn it though. Well, it depends. You should watch this Ricky J thing. Cause also magic people, they like to screw with your head, you know, hmm. like, uh, maybe I'll tell you, maybe you wait a week, maybe I'll tell you later. We'll see. You know, mm-hmm. some of these illusions are just in, in like uh, utterly incredible. And, you know, and, and they talk about this kind of, kind of in the way Penn and Teller do, but there's an old tradition, I guess, of saying like, I'm going to fool you and here's how I'm going to do it. And this is what's going to happen. And you're still not really going to understand what happened. And that's in some ways my favorite kind of like that kind of meta magic is fun to watch. <laughs> and then I find myself Googling for how they did it. And I feel like a bad person. Cause you want to, you want to bust the illusion up. Sometimes it's a trick. Yeah. Yeah. Magic, magic trick. Magic trick. Mm-hmm. Did we cover your, um, yeah. your topic? Yeah, very much so. That wasn't, that wasn't too bad. No. Yeah. That's right. a good one. Yeah. You think you release it? I mean, in time. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, sure. We'll hold it back a little bit. Mm. All right, let's button this up. I All love right. you. Love you too, Merlin, man. Mm-hmm.